Well, good morning, morning. and welcome. And I am just going to tell you, you guys over here, you miss it. Because over here, there are 20 fourth and fifth graders just singing at the top of their lungs. Pretty amazing. So uh, give it up. If you don't know, I mean, I think it's it's great to have our kids join us. They've all left, but we're going to talk about them anyway. It's fantastic. And it's great to watch them come in, and we reserve two rows for them. And they're not like adults, right? They sit right next to each other. They don't leave like four seats in between. And there's still not enough room in two rows. So be praying for our kids, for the adults who are walking alongside of them. And uh, it is amazing to have them join us in worship. Well, if you've been on vacation for a couple weeks or this is your first time with us, we are in week three of a four-week series on the book of Jonah. And if you are not familiar with the book of Jonah, I'll give you a quick recap just to get us caught up. So first of all, God calls Jonah. Jonah's a prophet, says, hey, I need you to go to Nineveh. Jonah says, hard pass, I'm going to go the other direction. And so he goes exactly the opposite way, and he wants to get as far away from God as he possibly can. So he gets on a boat headed to the end of the known world at that time. A big storm comes up. Jonah takes a nap. The sailors go down. They're like, hey, could you get up and like help us? And he's like, listen, just throw me overboard. The God of the seas is angry at me. And they're like, wait, you got on our boat and you made God angry? That's, thanks for that. They're like, but we, we're going to try to row back to shore. And they can't. And so they toss Jonah over and the, the, the storm calms and all's at peace. All right. And then God arranges, scripture says, God arranged for a fish to swallow Jonah. All right. I don't know about, we'll pause right there for just a second. I don't know about you, but I have this vivid imagination. And I've always wondered, what does it look like when a fish swallows a person? And then, thanks to the wonders of YouTube, I found a video of two kayakers being swallowed by a whale. So let me first say as a disclaimer, no one dies. <laughs> we are not watching. The swimmers are fine. The whale is fine. But take a look at the screens, and now we no longer have to imagine what this looked like. These two kayakers were kayaking in a popular whale-watching location when suddenly they were swallowed by a humpback whale. Oh! Oh! Speechless and unable to help, the onlookers watched in horror. A second camera angle captures this horrifying moment in even better quality. Thankfully, the humpback whale quickly spit them back out, and the kayakers were unharmed. <laughs> Let's just pause for a minute. Hey, what do you want to do today, sweetheart? It's a beautiful Saturday. Let's go kayaking. Oh, and get eaten by a whale. I'm so sorry. I watched this. Somebody sent it to me this week. I was like, okay, I'm going to share it. I don't know if it adds to the sermon or not, but we've got to share this. So there you go if you've ever wondered what it looked like. So meanwhile... Jonah hanging out, three days, belly of a whale, uh, just having a good time down there. Those sailors sail back to shore, and they do what's most unexpected of these sailors who have no clue who God is. They, like, repent, go to the temple, make a sacrifice to this God, and commit to serve him for the rest of their lives. Why, Jonah, again, hanging out in the belly of a whale. How long do you think? These are just, if you're like, what goes through Pastor Jason's mind? Weird thoughts. Weird thoughts go through Jason's mind all the time. That's what goes through my mind. So how long was Jonah in the belly of the whale before he realized, I don't think I'm going to die here, right? Like, like, I'm sure he wasn't like looking on his eye watch. It's been six hours. 
Stomach acid should have eaten me alive by now. Why am I not dead? I don't know. Maybe God's got a plan. But regardless, he's there. He cries out. Jonah chapter 2 is all about Jonah's cry back out to God to be good, the God, the God that Jonah knows him to be. And it's a promise that if you get me out of here, I'll serve you, right? And so God commands the fish to vomit Jonah onto the shore. And this is where we pick up our story this morning. Jonah is covered in fish vomit, smelling, smelling like stale seawater and standing on a beach. Now you might remember in week one, if you were here, I said the book of Jonah is all about us. Biblical scholar Tim Mackey says the design of the book of Jonah is to serve as a mirror that's supposed to mess with us and force us to answer the question, are we okay with God loving our enemies even if we don't want to? So as we dig into this book, are we okay with God loving the people we don't love even when we don't want to? You see, Jonah hated the Ninevites. So much he was willing to completely disobey God, run in the opposite direction, end up smelling like the inside of a fish while covered in whatever fish vomit smells and feels like. But it's a story that forces us to ask a question. Are we willing to do what we don't want to do? My guess is all of us at some point or another have had to do something we didn't want to do. Mine was in 2019. I was working with high school students. My job at the time was, was overseeing kids in middle school ministry and working directly with high school students. And we had been looking for a middle school ministry pastor that whole year. And uh, so I had, we'd been planning two different mission trips. <clears throat> the middle school kids were going to South Dakota to work on an Indian reservation, and the high school kids were going to Colorado. Now, that's all I really need to say. Do you want to go to South Dakota or do you want to go to Colorado? I wanted to go to Colorado, but I wanted to go with the kids I'd walked alongside, the kids I'd been discipling, the kids I'd been walking with. That's where I wanted to be. And we'd arranged for an incredible team of adults who loved middle school kids and our uh, youth ministry administrator to lead the team of middle schoolers going to South Dakota. And two weeks before that trip, we hired a new middle school ministry director. Now, I want you to think about her first day on the job. She showed up, first day on the job, first day of the mission trip, with bags packed, ready to load into a 15-passenger van with 30 middle school kids and head eight hours to South Dakota and live in a tent for a week. I mean, you, you are signing up for something when you agree to be a youth pastor, but that's, where, that's what she was going to do, right? And so I decided, as much as I want to go to Colorado, I should be there to help her make sure she gets off to a good start, things go well, and this ministry launches well. So I didn't want to go to South Dakota. I wasn't totally Jonah. I don't hate middle schoolers. I live with one of them. They're pretty nice, right? So like, please don't go home and be like, oh, Jason feels like about middle schoolers like Jonah felt about Nineveh. Not totally. I just didn't want to go, right? Like I wanted to be with these kids I discipled the whole time. But what would happen if all we ever did were the things we wanted to do. I mean, we know that can't work, right? But what if it could? What if we never did anything we want to do? None of us would know how bad Brussels sprouts taste. I know, for those of you who love them, you're like, you just need to cook them right and put bacon in it. I tried. They're still not good. 
I would never know if I didn't have to eat bread. If I didn't want to do what I didn't have to do, I'd never know. Maybe others of you, we would never know where our flower beds are because none of us wake up on a Saturday morning and go, you know, I want to spend my day off. I want to go pull weeds. And so our flower beds would just be overgrown if we didn't do things we didn't want to do. Would gyms even be a thing? I mean, the memberships would be much smaller because most of us go, I mean, more power to you if you go because you want to. I want to eat and I want to eat a lot. So I go to the gym. That's why I go, right? And would Mondays still be the hardest day of the week? Because if you didn't want to go to work, you just wouldn't have to, right? Like we have to do things we don't want to do. But yet, if, it's, if we're honest, how good are we at doing things we don't want to do when it comes to our relationship with Jesus? How many of us read the Bible when we feel like it? We pray when life's falling apart. We haven't talked to our neighbor in years because of a disagreement, and we just don't want to deal with it. We only love the people we want to. We, you fill in the blank. See, when we choose to live like this, our lives end up looking a lot like the prophet Jonah. And the truth about the prophet Jonah is that when he made this choice, he declared himself to be God. God, you want me to go to Nineveh. I'm going this way. I'm the one in charge. And the same is true for us. When we decide we're going to do what we want to do and not what God's asked us to do, we pretty much say, hey, God, you take a break. I'll be God in this situation. And the really dangerous part of this is we stop living with any sense of mission. I mean, listen to the last two things Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 28, 18. I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. It's kind of hard to go and make disciples and teach them to obey when we're doing what we want. The last thing Jesus says to his disciples before he heads to heaven, Acts 1.8, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus wants those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to be about mission, to be about making disciples, to be about doing what he's asked us to do. And he actually didn't make it that hard. You've heard this before, but in Matthew 28, the literal translation is as you're going. Like we want to say, we want to buy the lie that we're too busy. The command that Jesus gave is as you're going about the things you're doing, as you're going to practice, as you're going to work, as you're going out to eat, as you're loving your kids and parenting them, as we're doing the things we do in life, we should be making disciples. But the truth is, way too many of us are having way too few conversations with others about who Jesus is. Now, we come up with a lot better reasons to say than the honest truth, which is, we don't want to. 
right? We make it sound prettier. We come up with excuses and reasons, but ultimately it's, I don't, I don't really want to. I don't want to talk to him or I don't want to talk to her. I don't want to do that. Maybe the hardest question facing us as we look in the mirror of the book of Jonah is what's Jesus asking you and I to do? What's Jesus asking us to do? And the second one, it doesn't get any easier. Why are we choosing to do what we want instead? So today, as we dig into Jonah chapter 3, I hope that we see and find a little bit of confidence and assurance in this statement. When we do what we want, God still shows compassion to everyone. Even when we do what we want, God still shows compassion to everyone. Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh, and even now that he's out, he's cleaned up, I'm not so sure he's thrilled to be headed there. But if you've got your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and open up to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, as you read Jonah chapter 3, it should ring back a little bit for us to Jonah chapter 1, right? God is calling Jonah to go to Nineveh. Same thing he did in Jonah chapter 1, but Jonah this time says, okay, I'll go. I'll get up, I'll go, I'll go do the thing you want. Little fun Bible trivia fact, if you're a Bible trivia person and you just want to know, Jonah is the only prophet who has to get told by God to go somewhere twice. Everybody else is like, oh, I got it, I'll go. I wonder if that's maybe why we like Jonah sometimes. Because we're like, oh yeah, that's me. I need God to tell me twice, right? Sometimes I forget or I just don't want to. But when God calls, the only good response is to obey. And that's what we see in Jonah chapter 3. When God calls, the only good response is to obey. But I'm not sure Jonah's doing this with everything he's got, right? Can we be honest? He walks in there and preaches an eight-word sermon. Eight words. And that's in English. In Hebrew, it's five. So he's got five words for the people of Nineveh. And they're not super encouraging words. They're super brief, and they don't give much answers to any questions. There's no like, hey, why are you going to overthrow us? There's no who is going to overthrow us. I mean, Jonah just like walks into the city. He's like, hey. If y'all don't repent, God's going to wipe you out. Well, he doesn't even say God. He goes, if you don't, just want you to know this is going to happen. Oh, wait, why? Are you going to do this? Because if you're going to do this, we'll just take you out and that'll be super simple. And there's no indication that there's any way to stop this from taking place. Not to mention the three days walk, Nineveh wasn't that big. It was supposed to take Jonah three days to go in and do this. He was supposed to declare this message over and over and over so that the people heard it. But he gets like one day in and he tells one group of people and then he's like, and then we never hear from Jonah again in all of chapter three. He just disappears. From an outside perspective looking in, I feel like Jonah's done the bare minimum of what's required here. 
And I feel like as a parent of teenage boys, I can sympathize a little bit with Jonah, right? Because it's like, hey boys, go clean your room. Maybe you other parents can sympathize with me as well. You tell your parents or you tell your kids, go clean your room. And they come back 30 seconds later, they're like, it's done. And you had looked in there before you sent them to clean the room. And you know there is no way it got clean in 30 seconds. So you open the door to look in the room. The closet doors are closed, but when you open them, the clothes like fall onto you that they have shoved in to the closet. And then you, the, all the blankets that are like all over the floor are just in a pile on the bed and everything that looks school related is just in another pile on the desk. But you can see the carpet, so the room must be clean, right? I feel like that's the amount of effort Jonah puts into this sermon that he's preaching to the Ninevites. Now, some of you are like, hey, Jason, could you try the whole Jonah method? Could we just get five words and then be done? Can we just call that and be good? And you can pray for that. We'll see how it works out. It'll be great. But maybe the most important part of Jonah's message is the last word. The last word is overthrown. And that word shows us so much about the heart of Jonah and the heart of God in this story. Because for Jonah, when he goes in and he says, in 40 days, this city will be overthrown, Jonah's hope and prayer is that God will wipe them out. Utter destruction. And he has biblical precedent for that. Because the same word used for overthrown here is the word that God used when he told Abraham to go to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he said, tell them I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to destroy them. And that's exactly what God does. But this word overturned or overthrown is also used in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 5. And this is how it sounds there. Instead, the Lord your God turned or overthrew the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. That word turned is the same Hebrew word used for overthrown in Jonah chapter 3. And so we see this idea that Jonah wants to see Nineveh destroyed. God wants to see Nineveh turn around. He wants to see it go a different direction, turned upside down. It shows us about the heart of a God who has compassion and love for all people. It shows us a side of God that says, yes, I'm coming with a message of justice. But what I want is to show you grace. And that's what Jonah tells us in, four, in chapter 4, we'll get to next week, that he's really afraid of, is that God's going to show him grace. But let's pick up the rest of chapter 3 here and see what happens. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God, let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that's in his hands. Who knows? God may relent. Or God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. 
All right, now there's a lot going on in these few verses, but maybe the most unbelievable part of Jonah happens in these verses, right? Forget the fact that there's a prophet of God who God says, hey, go do this, and he's like, no, I want to do my own thing. Forget that, that's unbelievable. Forget the fact that Jonah was thrown in the water, swallowed, lived in the belly of a big fish for three days, vomited out, totally fine and alive, and then decides to go. Forget that, unbelievable. Jonah preached a five-word sermon that in all preaching classes would get an F, and the whole city repents, right? Just wrap your mind around that. Yesterday was a beautiful Saturday. You take yesterday, and you decide, I'm going to go call Peoria to repentance because God has commanded me to. So you take your bullhorn, And you walk down to the Beoria Farmer's Market right on the river, and you stand there, and you just scream into your bullhorn, in 40 days, Peoria will be overturned. What are people going to look at you and do? That guy's crazy. I don't know what's wrong with him, but we don't believe this story, right? It's almost unbelievable, but that's exactly what God did. Jonah preaches this eight-word English sermon. The whole city turns around. Not the king. The king doesn't hear about it first. The king hears about the people who have repented already, who have taken their clothes off and put on a burlap sack. I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but like maybe they just like to be itchy when they're repentant. I don't know. And then they go out in the backyard, dip into the fire pit, pour the ashes over their head, and they are sorry for what they've done. And then the king comes and says, wait, let's make this bigger. This is not enough. I want not only... I'm going to take off my royal robe, step off my throne, put on burlap, ashes on my forehead, but I want you to do this. And not just you, I want you to do all of your animals. I want all of your animals in burlap. I want them all with ashes on their head, and I want everybody to fast, right? Again, what goes on in Jason's mind? How do you get a chicken in in burlap? I'm just curious, like how does that work? But again, thanks to the wonders of Google, I can show you how you get a goat in a burlap sack. Here you go. There you go. Goat in burlap. So this is what all of Nineveh looked like when they repented. All the animals are in burlap. All the people are in burlap. And they are sorry for what they've done. At least they've shown all the outward signs of it. The king has stepped off of his throne. He said, I will leave my throne empty for whoever comes. For the God of Jonah to come and sit. And maybe, just maybe, that God will forgive us. But what's most important are the king's last two sentences. I want to read them again. Let everyone turn from his evil ways and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his anger so we may not perish. Jonah chapter 3 is giving us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to surrender our lives and stew what God wants. It's not coming from the characters we think it would come from. It's not coming from God's prophet. It's coming from the Ninevites. So what's it look like when God desires to show compassion? Or when we decide to say, I'm not going to do what I want, but I'm going to do what God wants. First, God shows his compassion. God saw the Ninevites. God saw that they needed something. God saw the evil that they were doing. 
And God wanted to show Nineveh compassion. He sends Jonah with a message that says, I'm going to destroy you. And we think, wow, that's not very loving. What if we would change that around? What if the most loving thing God could do is come with a message for people who were destroying others and say, if you don't stop, I'm going to destroy you. I think the opposite of that, the opposite of God being just in this, is apathy. It's not a calling people to do what's right. It's, it's being like, eh, eh, do what you want. I don't really care. Nobody's going to change their attitude then. God acts first with compassion towards the Ninevites. Then Jonah speaks God's word to them. This happens to us today. We don't have prophets, but we have friends who when they see us doing things that they know are going to be detrimental to our life, they speak truth into our lives. They speak the truth of God's word into our lives. We come to church on Sunday morning. We hear God's word proclaimed and it speaks into us. It's active. We read it throughout the week and it speaks to us. And then we have a choice. Will we believe that word is true? And if we do, the only option then is to repent and follow. Now, if you're like, what's repent? It's a big church word, just means turn around, right? I mean, if I'm just, we would just boil it down, it just means turn around. Jonah, Jonah's the clearest version of repent we see, or what it means, actually, he's the clearest version of the opposite of repent. God says, go this way, so that's the way I should go, right? I'm going to obey God, I'm going this way. Jonah goes, nope, going this way. And we walk this way. We do this all the time, too. We do what we want. God says, do this, and we do this. Repent means to turn around and do what God has asked us to do. And that's what we see the king calling the Ninevites to do when he says, hey, listen, stop doing evil. Stop hurting and doing violence to those who are created in God's image. Being a disciple of Jesus being a follower of Jesus, one who says, I'm going to follow Jesus, means we've died to our own will. We've died to what we want to do. And we're trusting that God has better plans for us. We don't do it perfect every time. But are we trying? And my guess is, this is an assumption I'm going to make. Assumptions are normally dangerous. Every one of us, at some point, has done what we wanted to do and not what God wanted us to do. So when I was a kid, I grew up going to Bible camp, right? And at Bible camp, Thursday night was cry night. So they're going to give a gospel presentation. Everybody's going to cry because they're sorry for the things that they've done. And people are going to accept Jesus and pray a prayer. It's a very good thing to do. We want people to follow Jesus. That's what they do. And then there's a whole other group, though, who have prayed that prayer already. And all year we've done what we wanted to. And so now we feel guilty because we've been at camp for four days. And so we're like, hey, I want to I I repent of what I've done and recommit my life to Christ, right? This is the way camp works. It, it's just the formula that works. It's worked for camp for years. My thought, though, as I look back on those memories and I think about repentance, I think a lot of what happens at camp is we go forward because our friends went forward. Or we go forward because we're sorry we got caught, not because we're actually sorry for what we did. 
So my question, the question that Jonah forces all of us to answer is, the junk that's in our life where we do what we want to do, are we really sorry? Or are we just sorry we got caught? Because sorry we got caught isn't repentance. Sorry that we've disobeyed God, that we've gone against what he asked us to do, that we have not done the things that God wants for us that change our behavior, that cause us to turn around, that's repentance. It leads to life change. And it leads the king to be like, maybe if we do this, God will relent. Maybe. And it's in that statement that again, Tim Mackey says, everyone is awake to God except Jonah in this story. This king has hope that God is good, that God is compassionate, that God is gracious. And he says, maybe, maybe, let's try it. Let's do the right thing and see if God will relent. That's the saddest part of the story of Jonah. Jonah misses it in Jonah chapter one. He gets thrown in, swallowed by a fish. Meanwhile, the sailors repent make a sacrifice and say they're going to serve God. Jonah misses it in chapter three. He goes in, supposed to preach for three days, preaches half-hearted for one, goes outside the city. We're going to find out in chapter four. I'm not going to go too far there. I won't have anything to say next week. And pouts and misses this incredible thing. Can you imagine can you imagine if you went down to, the, to Peoria's farmer market, like we talked about, take yourself back to that scene, and the whole city actually said, wait, you're right. We need to repent. We need to turn around and follow God. We'd all be like, this is amazing. I'd love to be a part of something like that that God does. Not Jonah. He just misses it. See, the truth of Jonah chapter 3 is when we do what we want, God will still show compassion on everyone. Let's take a look at the last verse. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented of the disaster that he'd said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This verse, found in this little story of Jonah in the Old Testament, should be life-changing for each and every one of us. The God who is just, who would watch the terrible behavior of the Ninevites, who told Jonah to go and tell them, I'm going to destroy them, shows them compassion. That same God looks at you and me and all the times when we do what we want to. And he said, you know what? I love them so much. I'm going to send my son to die on a cross, to pay the price they couldn't pay, to show them how much I love them. And he has unending compassion and mercy and grace for us. That's what that verse is all about. Here at Great Oaks, we want to be known for six things. Unassuming authenticity, unimaginable transformation, unhindered faith, unending development, untamed excitement, and uncommon generosity. I think you can see all six of those things in the story of Jonah, but the two I want to point out 
this morning. God shows up in Nineveh through the prophet Jonah with unassuming authenticity. He met the Ninevites where they were. And he allowed them and his presence in their lives to lead them to change. Not through a well-scripted sermon. I don't think Jonah practiced that a ton. Five words. That's the way God is with us. He was the same way with Jonah. He let Jonah keep doing it, keep messing up. God said, Jonah, I'll be here when you're ready to welcome you in, to love you. He met Jonah where he was. And that's what we're called to do as a church is meet people where they are. And then God did what only God can do. Unimaginable transformation whole city repented, turned and went the other way. That's what we believe the power of the gospel can do in our lives and in the lives of those around us. Every one of us does what we want to from time to time. But what do we miss? As we close, I want to go back to South Dakota. So I didn't want to go to South Dakota. But I went. And because I went, I got to see God do amazing things that I never could have imagined. Because I went on a middle school mission trip, I got to take my oldest son, Josiah, on his first ever mission trip. He wasn't in middle school yet, but he was close enough. And I got to watch him love people who had nothing to give him back who looked nothing like him, who believed nothing that he believed. And he got to share them, share with them the love of Jesus through word and action. I got to watch this 11-year-old kid climb a ladder and re-roof someone's house. Full disclosure, I hate heights. There wasn't a chance I was getting on that roof. I'd get the shingles up there and let them put them on. But I got to watch my kid do that. I got to experience gratitude in ways I've rarely gotten to experience gratitude. Where we were in South Dakota is the poorest zip code in the Northern Hemisphere. And I got to watch people who had literally nothing give us whatever they had as a token of appreciation for what had happened that week. There's a painting a pencil drawing that hangs in my office. That's a picture of baby Jesus with an Indian feather. And I got the chance to sit and listen to this guy's story of unimaginable transformation in a jail cell. And he said, when Jesus came, I didn't have anything else to draw on. So I just used my court papers. So when you flip that over, it's his conviction notice. But on the front is his Savior. And I got to hear his story. You see, when we only do what we want to do, we miss out on the incredible things God has for us. So if you're here this morning and you've never said, hey, God, I'm going I'm to follow. I want to follow you. 
We have a team of people who would love to pray with you at the end of service. They'll be on the side of the room and they would love to pray with you and help you understand what it means to take that first step towards Jesus. And in just a moment, the ushers are gonna come out and we're gonna take communion. And as you come forward to take communion today, I want you to realize that as we come as followers of Jesus, as we take that bread and we take that juice, we profess again that God is the one in control. That we're gonna do our best to do what you want, not what we want. No matter how hard or scary it is, And yes, we're going to fail. And God, we're so thankful for your grace. But our heart is to do what you want us to do. And so keep transforming us. Keep helping us grow. It's what Jesus meant in that upper room when he served his disciples communion for the first time. So as you come, be reminded of the God who is full of compassion, enough that took him to a cross to die for your sin and my sin. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we read this story, it is amazing to see how you worked in this city and these people who were far from you. And you worked. But God, it's hard to read because we realize sometimes we're Jonah. We're not the Ninevites. We don't get it. We don't see it. We're Jonah. We're sitting over here doing what we want. And so God, we ask for your forgiveness for times when we do what we want and not what you have for us. God, we thank you for your grace that forgives us, that restores us, that makes us right with you. And God, I pray that we never take that for granted. God, thank you for your son who paid the price we couldn't pay. Thank you for his love and his gift to us. We pray all of this in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.